Okay, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. I'm Dr. Jeff, I'm a paediatric oncologist and uh, this is my podcast and uh, like I've said before, I'm sad that you're listening to this because you're probably listening because someone you love has been affected with a, a form of cancer and that's a uh, that's a bad situation and I hope that you're getting all the help you need and you're charting a course forward. Anyway, today I want to talk about a particular type of childhood cancer called neuroblastoma. Neuroblastoma. And uh, neuroblastoma is one of the more common types of cancer that we see in children and it's quite a complicated one so there's a lot to say about it uh, because there are forms of neuroblastoma that are very readily cured. All they might need is an operation to uh, cut out a lump and then that's it and problem solved and everything's good. Some don't even need an operation. But at the same time there's other neuroblastomas that are, are aggressive and spread elsewhere in the body from the main lump and can be very difficult to cure and they're ones that need everything we can throw at it, including chemotherapy, operations, radiation, fancy new drugs. So it's quite a difficult tumour to, uh, to get your head around and I guess one of the first points to make is that you can't hear the word neuroblastoma and think, oh well, that's, uh, that's a good one, you know, that's going to be readily cured or that's a bad one, and, you know, you just can't generalise that way. There are, there are more, more serious ones, there are less serious ones, and you'll hear it's all very complicated. Anyway, the first thing to say is that its name, neuroblastoma, it makes you think it might be a brain tumour, doesn't it? Because it's got that neuro word there. But well, it's not. It's not a brain tumour at all. Neuroblastoma is normally a, uh, a tumour that presents with a lump somewhere. A lump. The most common place to have that lump would be in the abdomen. A big a big mass of tumour in the abdomen. Uh, the second most common place would be somewhere in the chest, usually uh, next to the spinal column. So at the back of the chest, next to the spinal column. And you can get them in the neck and you can get them in other places, but they're the main sites for where it occurs. And so, it, you know, often it, that's how it presents to the healthcare system, you know, with, with a lump that people can feel in the tummy or they can see on a chest x-ray or feel in the neck. So neuroblastoma is a, is a tumour mostly of children under about the age of five years, uh, five or six years. You get it sometimes in older children but really the great majority of cases of neuroblastoma are seen in children between birth and five years of age. So it's a tumour really of preschool children. Like I said, you can get it in older people, you can get it in teenagers or even adults, but then it's very rare. Now, next I have to explain where neuroblastoma arises from. What part of the body is this lump growing in? Okay, it's a lump alright, but what did it grow out of? Okay, well, there's two things that it can grow out of. One is the adrenal gland. Now the adrenal gland is this little thing that sits on top of your kidney on each side. So we have two adrenal glands 
and the adrenal glands normal role in life is to make hormones so they make some of the hormones that control how much salt your body keeps in in the uh, in the body you know they they send out hormones that tell the kidneys what to do in terms of controlling salt and water metabolism and they make cortisol you know cortisol is a, a normal hormone that's important for the body and then the other thing they make is adrenaline you've all heard of adrenaline you know adrenaline rush you know when people go parachuting or bungee jumping or something like that they talk about adrenaline rush well the adrenaline comes from the adrenal glands and they're on top of the kidney and uh, neuroblastoma arises in the adrenal glands and forms as a tumor in the adrenal gland on one side or the other sometimes both but not often more often one side or the other so that's one place neuroblastomas arise from now the other place it arises from is something called the sympathetic nerve ganglia all right now these are things you've probably never heard of well it turns out okay you look at your backbone in your chest you know you've got all those vertebrae forming the the spinal column the vertebral column okay that's the bones now running down the middle of the bones in, in the spinal canal is the spinal cord okay the spinal cord which is you know all the messages from your brains to your arms and your legs so the messages go down the spinal cord and then they go out the nerves to your arms and your legs and everywhere else so that's what the spinal cord does well in the chest so the thoracic vertebrae they also send out these little nerves from the spinal cord uh, called the sympathetic nerve ganglia ganglia all right and they're just uh, little nerves that carry uh, the messages of what we call the sympathetic nervous system now the sympathetic nervous system has nothing to do with whether you're a very sympathetic person you know if you feel sympathy for for people in their times of trial or something it's one of those old medical words but anyway that's the sympathetic nervous system sympathetic nervous system does things like control your heart rate and uh, you know control sweat a bit and you know when you blush when you're embarrassed and you go red in the face that's the sympathetic nervous system okay so it does stuff that you don't actually think about it just does stuff in the background like when you're frightened your heart rate goes up um, that's what the sympathetic nervous system does anyway and a neuroblastoma can also arise from those nerve ganglia things which are usually next to the spinal column so that's why you can get them in the chest next to the spinal column or even invading into the spinal canal compressing the spinal cord so uh, that's where neuroblastomas arise from from the adrenal gland or from those sympathetic nerve ganglia in the chest or in the abdomen but somehow they can end up in the neck and all sorts of other weird places but that's for complicated reasons okay that's neuroblastoma now one of the things about neuroblastoma is that it can start as a lump say in the adrenal gland on top of the kidney there and it can get big but it also has a tendency to spread to elsewhere in the body um, and unfortunately more often we find with neuroblastoma that they have spread to elsewhere in the body uh, 
I don't know, I think maybe about 70% of the time we find that neuroblastomas have spread to elsewhere in the body. So they can spread to the lymph nodes, you know, the lymph glands that are also around it in the abdomen or the chest or in the neck. And then the other key place that neuroblastoma spreads to is the bones and the bone marrow. So when they do that, they can spread into the bone marrow. And it's a bit like, um, you know, what I said in the earlier podcast on leukemia. If we do a, if we sample some bone marrow and look at it with the microscope, we can see these neuroblastoma cancer cells in the bone marrow. And often they can get to being 90% of the cells in the bone marrow are no longer normal bone marrow cells, but are actually neuroblastoma cancer cells that have spread there from the from the cancer in the abdomen or the chest. Um, neuroblastoma can also spread though to the outside of the bones, the, the hard surface on the outside of the bones, that's called the bone cortex. And that's something you pick up with scans, you don't pick that up with the bone marrow test. Um, but neuroblastoma can spread to other parts of the body, it can spread into the liver, uh, can even spread into the brain. Um, uh, that's not as common. It's mostly the bone and bone marrow, lymph nodes, they're the really, uh, the more common places where it spreads. And unfortunately when it does spread, that usually makes it more serious. I say usually, not always. Okay. So how do children with neuroblastoma turn up to the healthcare system? Well, they can turn up with a mass, you know, a lump, a big tumour. And that might be a tumour in the abdomen. And tumours in the abdomen um, might be that the parents notice that the child's tummy is really big, or they might actually feel this lump in the side of the abdomen. Usually it's on the side. Um, you know, common one is in the bathtub or something. They, they, they pick up a child and suddenly feel a, a lump in the abdomen. And those lumps can be really big. You'd be amazed how, um, how huge some of these lumps get to uh, before someone detects them. Uh, sometimes the ones in the tummy are only found, uh, incidentally, a child has an ultrasound for some other reason or an x-ray for some other reason, and there the, the mass is seen, a lump in the abdomen. In the chest it may turn up with a lump, and that might be something also that's picked up, just, you know, they're having a chest x-ray for some other reason, they've got an infection or something, and, and we can see the lump just as what you call an incidental finding, which we then have to investigate. Or if it's, uh, if it's a really big lump, well, it could indeed compress the, you know, the airway, the breathing, and cause a cough or noisy breathing or even difficulty breathing um, may present just with a lump in the neck, neuroblastoma. But another uh, way that neuroblastoma presents is, you know, I said how the uh, tumour can spread to elsewhere in the body, particularly to the bones and the bone marrow. Well, that can make the child quite miserable. That can cause sore bones, bone pains. So children with neuroblastoma that spread uh, to the bones and the bone marrow are often pretty miserable and in some pain. And, and uh, some of those bones can sort of create a funny sort of bruise-like effect. So child can look like they've got black eyes, you know, like, a, like, you know, like someone who's been punched in the face gets black eyes. Well, um, it's a classic presentation for neuroblastoma is a child who has uh, both eyes as black eyes. Um, another presentation is anemia. 
so if the bone marrow has a lot of tumour in it, well the bone marrow might not work properly anymore, just like in leukaemia, you know, and the bone marrow's role in life is to make blood, remember, it's to make red blood cells and white blood cells and platelets and pump them all out into the bloodstream. Well, if the bone marrow is uh, occupied by a lot of tumour cells, it may not make blood properly and so we commonly see a degree of anemia. Anemia is a low level of red blood cells in the body and that's measured as something called the haemoglobin level on a basic blood count. Um, but then there's all these other strange presentations of neuroblastoma. You know, the, that's the most common one, I suppose, a lump in the abdomen or the chest and then all the symptoms of it having spread elsewhere in the body. That's the more common one and, and unfortunately that's a serious one usually. But there's a few other ways that we see neuroblastoma turning up. One is this very odd situation that we typically see in very young babies. So mostly under one year of age and mostly under six months of age, sometimes even in, in the first weeks of life. And that's a neuroblastoma that, uh, that spreads to the liver and to the skin and to the bone marrow and spreads in a way to the liver that the liver becomes huge. The liver has so much neuroblastoma in it that it becomes very big and to the point where it may even make it difficult for the child to breathe just because the liver is so big. The liver's tucked up under your rib cage on the right hand side. Well, if it gets too big, it makes it hard to breathe because it's pushing up on the lungs. Um, so that can be something of an emergency to, to relieve the problem and get, and get it so the child can breathe properly. Interestingly, usually that form of neuroblastoma is a very favourable one. You know, it may only need a, a small amount of chemotherapy just to start the process of making it go away and then over several months it tends to fizzle out and disappear. So it's a funny uh, situation. It looks like a, a very serious situation, and it is, but ultimately it's one where our drugs are very good at curing the disease. So that's called a stage 4S, S for special, stage 4S. So stage 4 is when neuroblastoma has spread, you know, beyond uh, the abdomen or the chest where it started. So if it's spread to the bones or the bone marrow, that's stage 4. Well this one's stage 4S, S for special, and it's really just in uh, infants and particularly in the first few months of life and it's only for disease that's spread to the liver, to the bone marrow, and only to a small degree in the bone marrow, and to the skin. And usually they have a small tumour somewhere in the abdomen or the chest as well. That's it. Another uh, way that neuroblastomas present is on the antenatal ultrasound. You know how uh, uh, people have ultrasounds before baby's born? Well, the quality of ultrasound has got so good that now we're actually detecting small tumours of the adrenal gland on the fetus before it's even born. And we're seeing more and more of these. Now what we uh, are trying to work out is, well do we really have to do anything about them? See this is the funny thing, there's a group of neuroblastomas that have a tendency just to fizzle out and go away and not be a problem. And we're you know, we have to work out what sort of neuroblastoma is the one that's going to fizzle out and do nothing, or what's the one where we need to cut it out, uh, 
and do we have to give chemotherapy, etc. So it, it becomes quite complicated, but more and more we're starting to think that these ones that appear in the newborn baby just as an adrenal mass, an adrenal lump, without any spread elsewhere in the body, that these might be ones that we can just watch with ultrasounds and see if it just fizzles out and goes away. They don't really go away, they do this thing called differentiating. Differentiating, so there's neuroblastoma, which is cancer, okay? And then there's this other condition that's related to it called ganglioneuroma, which is not cancer. Now what happens is, in the favorable forms of neuroblastoma, is that the neuroblastoma converts into a ganglioneuroma. That's a process we call differentiation. And it seems that there are a group of neuroblastomas that will just spontaneously do this in time. And uh, then there's a group of neuroblastomas that won't just spontaneously do this and will need us to treat them intensively and actively. Complicated business. Another way that neuroblastomas sometimes turns up is with compression of the spinal cord. So remember a lot of these tumours start out next to the spinal cord, so next to the spinal column, the bones of the back, next to the backbones. Not, not so much that you could feel from the outside, but on the inside of the chest, next to the vertebral column, uh, or in the inside of the abdomen. Now, as it grows, the tumour, it can sort of sneak in between some of the backbones and get in and compress the spinal cord. Remember the spinal column is the bones, the spinal cord is that thing going down the middle of the backbones that's uh, carrying the messages from your brain to the arms and legs and elsewhere. That's the spinal cord. Well, the tumour can bulge in between some of the backbones uh, and get in there and compress the spinal cord. And this is a big problem if it occurs. It may cause weakness in the legs or the arms and legs or difficulty passing urine. It can even cause full paraplegia or quadriplegia. It's an emergency. Uh, and um, we regularly have to deal with this as a presentation of neuroblastoma. Uh, oftentimes chemotherapy will cause a quick shrinkage of the tumour and take the heat off the, uh, off the spinal cord, but other times patients have had surgery uh, to decompress the spinal cord. Anyway, they're just a few of the ways that neuroblastoma can present. Like I said, the more common one is with a lump in the abdomen and spread to the bones and bone marrow, maybe a low blood count, and that's the, uh, the, the more common one and unfortunately the more serious one, the stage four neuroblastoma. Anyway, let's keep going. Now, so when a child turns up to us and uh, we think they might have neuroblastoma, well, we have to do all of our tests. So we do a blood count to see if there's anemia. Probably the child will already have had an ultrasound of the abdomen to look for the lump, uh, and they may have had a chest x-ray to look for a lump in the chest. But eventually we usually end up doing a CT scan. A CT scan or maybe an MRI scan. They're those scans that, you know, where you slide up inside the big tunnel thing and, that, and the machine goes clang, bang, whiz, and and takes pictures from all sorts of angles and then gives you those detailed pictures you know in slices right through the body 
so a CT scan or an MRI scan. MRI is, um, uh, gives you a better quality of picture, uh, but it's much longer scan and CT is better for certain other things. So I guess in our unit more often we, we would use a CT scan. If you want to look at the spinal cord though, the MRI scan is really the, the better test. Um, we do a urine test when we suspect neuroblastoma. Remember how I said that um, the adrenal glands make adrenaline? Okay, well, on the way to making adrenaline, the adrenal glands and the sympathetic ganglia convert one chemical to another chemical to VMA to HVA to adrenaline. That's not quite exactly how it goes, but anyway, along the way in making adrenaline, there's these two chemicals called VMA and HVA. And those chemicals are usually produced in excess quantities by neuroblastomas. So if you do a urine test, you can measure this. It's called doing the catecholamines, urinary catecholamines. And uh, we can measure these and see if there are elevated levels of HVA and VMA. And in a child who has a lump in the abdomen or the chest that looks like a neuroblastoma and who has raised catecholamines, well, that's pretty clear then this, um, that this will turn out to be a case of neuroblastoma. Um, also, as we're working up the patient, doing all of our tests, we'll do a bone marrow test at some point. This is a needle into the back of the sort of pelvis bone at the back. Uh, usually with some sort of sedation or even a general anaesthetic because it's a bit painful. But that's a needle into the bones. We usually do it on both sides. Take a sample from both sides of the bone marrow. That's an aspirate. That's a, the liquid stuff we suck out with a syringe. And then we also do what's called a bone marrow trephine. Trephine is uh, also called a bone marrow biopsy. That's one where we put the needle in and uh, extract a core of the bone marrow in a solid piece and look at that with the microscope. So we're doing a bone marrow aspirate and a trephine and there are ways to look at the bone marrow and see if the neuroblastoma has spread into the bone marrow. Because if it's spread in higher levels to the bone marrow, well, you can usually pick any, any site and uh, sample it and you'll find it in there. So we, we do it from the, the sort of back of the hip bone. I talked about bone marrows a bit more earlier in the leukemia podcast. Anyway, sooner or later, we have to get a biopsy of the primary tumour, usually. Usually. Not always. There are times when uh, the diagnosis is made, say, from the bone marrow test and from the urine test, or by the scan appearances and the urine test, or it's not safe to do a biopsy, or the child's too unwell. In a perfect world, it's generally preferred to get a biopsy of the main primary tumour, the main lump that the tumour started from, or, or at least a chunk of tumour from another site. Part of the reason we want to do that biopsy is because we do a lot of uh, special biologic tests to work out if it's a more favourable form of neuroblastoma or a high-risk form of neuroblastoma. And I'll explain that to you a bit more in a little while, but uh, all of those tests require tissue and uh, it's generally better to get a proper biopsy of the, of the main tumour 
rather than just relying on the urinary tests and the bone marrow tests, generally. Now, how do you get a biopsy? Well, if you imagine a patient has a lump in the abdomen or in the chest, it may be that you can perform what's called a needle biopsy. So this is often done these days by a fancy x-ray doctor called an interventional radiologist. And an interventional radiologist is, is a doctor who can use ultrasound or CT scan to direct a fine needle through the skin and right into the tumour and then take several pieces of tumour with this biopsy needle. Um, and they can take several pieces that way. Uh, it's a good way to do it in some ways, but it's not as good in others. So it's good because it avoids having to make a cut on the abdomen or the chest, and it's uh, a, a very, uh, very much a non-invasive procedure, I suppose. On the other hand, we don't tend to get as good a quality samples of tissue to do all the complicated tests we have to do in neuroblastoma. So uh, there are there are some groups and organisations and research trials and so on where they really discourage needle biopsy and prefer the use of open biopsy. An open biopsy uh, normally requires a cut to be made on the abdomen or the chest and, and then the surgeon can go in and actually take a piece of tumour. Now, <coughs> now they may be able to use a, a laparoscope or a thoracoscope to look through the cut and take a piece under direct vision that way rather than having to cut the abdomen wide open to get the piece of tumour. But that's up to the surgeons. But in any event, do it, that's called an open biopsy and, and you'll get a better piece of tissue that way, but it's a bigger procedure and it's going to have a, potentially a bit more risk and a bit more recovery time. But a lot hinges on getting good tissue and you know working out the biology of the tumour because that's going to become critically important as we work out whether this is a lower risk neuroblastoma or a very high risk one. Okay. Now, it may be eventually that the, your only option is to take a biopsy from the bone marrow to make a diagnosis. Uh, sometimes the primary tumour is so small uh, that there's such widespread disease elsewhere in the body that you actually get the diagnosis from the bone marrow test or from the liver biopsy or from a lymph node biopsy in the neck or somewhere else. Um, but anyway, normally we try to get a biopsy from somewhere. Occasionally we don't biopsy anything because we can make the diagnosis with the urine test and the scans and, and so on. Okay, so once the biopsy is taken, it's sent off to the pathology lab. The pathologists uh, make slides, look at it with the microscope, do all their special tests on it to work out whether it's a neuroblastoma or not, and then they can give you a result uh, you know, within usually 24, 48 hours, uh, whether it looks like neuroblastoma. I guess more like 48 hours. In an emergency, they can tell you sooner. They can freeze a bit and make slides, but they're usually bodgy slides. They usually like to make proper slides that take a day or two. Anyway, then you've got a diagnosis of neuroblastoma. Next, we have to work on working out what stage is the neuroblastoma. Stage refers to how, how big is the tumour and how much has it spread elsewhere in the body, etc. And, uh, you know, there's, historically there have been 
three or four different staging systems. Um, there was one that went from one to four, and there was one that went from A to D, and so on. Anyway, there's agreed staging systems internationally now. But I'll, I'll try to keep it simple. Basically, we, we stage the tumour one, two, three, or four, or 4S. Remember, 4S for special? That's the one in the, in the young babies, in the liver and skin, and, and usually the very big liver. But no, mostly it's stage one, two, three, or four. Now, stages one and two are just localized to where the tumor is in the tummy or the chest. Stage three also has not spread elsewhere in the body. It's just present in the main lump, but it's a bigger tumor uh, where it is. And in particular, a stage three tumor is one that's crossed the midline. So the midline is, you know, the uh, the line through your backbone and if the tumour crosses all the way from one side of the abdomen over all the way to the other side then that's how it gets to be a stage 3 tumour and the same in the chest it's a funny thing to think why would it matter if it's crossed the midline or not but anyway it does seem to matter uh, in all the big trials and all the analyses it does seem to matter so stages 1, 2 and 3 are all confined uh, to the area where the tumour originally arose and the lymph nodes involved there and that's all a bit complicated defining what's stage one, what's stage two, what's stage three. Um, the big distinction though is has it spread in distant fashion? Distant what we call metastatic disease is where a tumour is spread to uh, the bones or the bone marrow or a lymph node that's distant from the primary tumour in the abdomen or the chest or to the liver or to the brain or somewhere. That means it's stage four if it has spread in this fashion. Now the way we work that out, well we do the bone marrow test remember and that's uh, to see if there's malignant tumour cells visible in the bone marrow. and the other way we work it out is with our scans. Now, uh, here we rely very much on what we call nuclear medicine scans. Nuclear. These are those scans, you know, where they inject some radioactive stuff into the blood and then either a day later or a few hours later uh, lie the patient on a, on a special bed with a special camera over them and the camera measures radiation and areas of the body that have taken up this radioactive tracer light up as hot spots on the scan. Now I'll do a whole podcast on these scans at a later date but uh, basically if the patient has spread of the tumour into bones then those bones will light up hot usually on a bone scan. Uh, so a bone scans the old old-fashioned technology it's an injection of a radioactive tracer and a few hours later uh, lie under the camera and look for hot spots in the bones that would indicate uh, spread to the bones. So that's spread to the bone cortex. Remember, there's the bone marrow that we look at with the bone marrow test and there's the bone cortex that we look at with the bone scan. Anyway, that, that's what the bone scan does. Now there's another scan, another one of these nuclear medicine scans that's better. That's called the MIBG scan meta iodobenzyl guanidine it's another one of these radioactive traces but it's really very specifically taken up by neuroblastoma and a couple of other tumors that you see in adults yeah 
so MIBG, specific tracer for neuroblastoma. This one's injected one day and then normally the pictures are taken the next day under the radiation camera and this will normally show the primary tumour to take up the MIBG and it'll also show any sites elsewhere in the body that are taking up the MIBG indicating spread of the cancer to those locations. Now rarely you get neuroblastomas that don't take up MIBG but it's, uh, it's only a couple of percent of the time. So the MIBG scan is uh, really the best scan for looking at the whole body for signs of spread of disease. Now there are others I suppose, I mean there's, there have been people who looked at total body MRI scan and uh, you may pick up spread uh, you know with CAT scans and things but it, the bone marrow and MIBG scan are the, uh, the two main things to look at has the tumour spread from the primary site in the abdomen or chest and if it has to a distant site then we're normally saying that it's stage 4 disease. That's metastatic uh, neuroblastoma. Okay so now we've made a diagnosis we've performed our staging now it comes to this uh, area of the workup called tumor biology. Neuroblastoma has very variable tumor biology there are forms of neuroblastoma that are highly aggressive and can be predicted to be difficult to cure and to need all the chemotherapy and radiotherapy and all sorts of drugs. And then there are other neuroblastomas that have what we call favorable biology. Favorable biology meaning that they'll, uh, they may just need minimal treatment, maybe just an operation. So all of these biologic tests are very important to perform in neuroblastoma. Now the first one that uh, was worked out was something called the NMIC gene. That's, you spell it with a capital N, N for Nelly, hyphen MYC, M-Y-C. The NMIC gene. The NMIC gene is uh, a normal gene. You're meant to have two copies of the NMIC gene in every cell in your body. One copy that you got from your mother and one copy you got from your father. Now, about 25% of neuroblastomas have what we call NMIC amplification. What that means is the tumor cells have multiple copies of this NMIC gene. So the patient has two, two copies of the NMIC gene in every cell in their body except the tumor cells. And these tumor cells have multiple copies. You know, it could be 20 or 30, it could be hundreds of copies of this NMIC gene uh, just sitting there. Now, people who are right into neuroblastoma will explain to you uh, what it's doing there and how it got there, I suppose. I don't know how well it's all worked out now, but uh, all we know is that that's called NMIC amplification. And a neuroblastoma with NMIC amplification, well, that's the worst thing you can find in neuroblastoma. In fact, even a uh, a tumour that's stage 1 or stage 2, a so-called favourable tumour, if it has NMIC amplification, there's nothing favourable about it. That becomes a high-risk tumour. There are other abnormalities we look for. We look for abnormalities of chromosome 1, chromosome 11, chromosome 17, and sometimes these tests can be done in the hospital where the child's being treated, or sometimes they're performed uh, in a 
you know, a central reference lab within a big research organisation. So, you know, the, the doctors and the hospital you're at, they may uh, be participants in one of the big international groups that conducts trials in neuroblastomas. So there's uh, the COPEN group in Europe, the Children's Oncology group in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and elsewhere. And oftentimes these uh, big groups have a central reference lab that's conducting some of these tests. So sometimes they're available through the research studies and sometimes they've been incorporated into mainstream care at the base hospital. Anyway, chromosomes 1, 11 and 17. And then there's uh, a variety of other tests that have um, been developed along the way, all looking to try to refine the diagnosis of uh, favourable biology and unfavourable biology. Another one was developed by Dr Shimada, S-H-I-M-A-D-A, Dr Shimada, um, I think he was in Los Angeles, and he's a pathologist, you know, the microscope guy, and he developed a, a, a grading system according to the appearances of the neuroblastoma under the microscope. That's called the Shimada classification scheme, and uh, that's one of the reasons why needle biopsies aren't as good as open biopsies sometimes, because it's harder to do that Shimada classification on a small fragment and it's better to do it on a, a good chunk of tumour that's been obtained by open biopsy. So that's why some uh, units prefer to do open biopsies. Okay, now on the basis of all of this, we're getting close to performing what we call a risk stratification. The final piece of the puzzle I haven't mentioned, and it's the simplest, and that's the patient's age. The patient's age is important in neuroblastoma. For many years, under the age of 12 months was considered a favourable age, and then older than one was unfavourable. Now in recent times that one year figure has sort of shifted a bit, and it might be that it's 18 months of age is where the sort of difference becomes more apparent between the more favourable and the less favourable ones. So this is always a bit of a work in progress, but uh, ultimately what we do is we, we factor in the age of the patient, the stage of their disease, and the biology of the disease. Is there endmic amplification? Are there abnormalities of chromosome 1, chromosome 11? Is the Shimada classification favourable or unfavourable? Is the DNA content of the tumour cells favourable or unfavourable? A whole lot of things. And then we end up with this huge, great, elaborate chart that we put all of this data into, and then we can identify whether a given patient has low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk neuroblastoma. And on that basis, we can work out how best to treat the patient. Low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk and when I say risk, I'm talking about what is the risk of not curing the patient. Now, the unfortunate thing is that high-risk neuroblastoma is the more common form of neuroblastoma. Basically, anybody over the age of about 18 months who has neuroblastoma that is spread to the bone marrow or bones, so we're talking stage 4 neuroblastoma, after, over the age of one and a half years, that is a high risk form of neuroblastoma. 
And then if they also have the bad biology of the NMYC gene, well, that just makes it even worse, I suppose. So once you have stage four neuroblastoma over the age of one and a half, well, we're into a high risk group that's going to need very aggressive chemotherapy, surgery, the works. And unfortunately, that is the more common form of neuroblastoma. But there are a significant minority of patients who have low risk disease. They might just need an operation. They might need a bit of chemotherapy to shrink the tumor and then cut out the tumor. But they may have a very good outlook for being cured of whatever we do. And then there's an intermediate risk group as well that commonly needs some chemotherapy, uh, cut out the primary tumor and uh, have a good outlook without having to resort to the highly intensive treatments we need in high-risk neuroblastoma. I'm going to do a whole separate podcast or two or five on the treatment of neuroblastoma, but just let me say something about the treatment of each category in broad terms. I've already talked about the low and intermediate risk groups as, as patients who may just need an operation or they may need some chemotherapy and then to have the tumour removed after it's shrunk down a bit with chemotherapy. And these patients tend to have a very good outlook, I mean, meaning that the great majority of them will be cured of their disease with either surgery or surgery and chemotherapy. Now the high risk patients, and like I said, unfortunately they're the more common group. They might be about 70% of patients, I suppose. Well, they need highly intensive treatment. They need intensive chemotherapy drugs. So I mean drugs that are given for three or four or five days every three weeks for maybe five cycles of treatment, something like that. And that's strong treatment, strong. Have to be in hospital to give the drugs, often end up back in hospital with side effects. But after five cycles normally, something like that, we would do all of our scans again and hopefully see that the tumour has shrunk, that the bone marrow is cleared and that the MIBG scan has improved. And at that point we might consider cutting out the main tumour, then going on with further chemotherapy. Now in high risk disease over the age of one and a half, then we would normally proceed on to what's called an autologous bone marrow transplant. This is a very high dose of chemotherapy, so high that the bone marrow wouldn't normally recover. So before we do that, in fact way back at the very start, we will have collected some bone marrow stem cells from the bloodstream and frozen them. So then when we get to this high dose chemotherapy phase, we give the big whopping dose of chemotherapy and give those cells back. That's called an autologous bone marrow transplant or an autologous stem cell transplant. So it's not a bone marrow transplant like, um, you know, where you get bone marrow from one person and give it to another person. It's your own bone marrow. Anyway, I'll talk about it in more detail. We would usually then give radiation therapy to the area where the tumor was cut out from. And then these days we would hopefully be able to give the patient uh, a new therapy. It's called uh, anti-neuroblastoma antibody therapy. And that's been a real big step forward in recent years, um, accessible usually via research trials till now, but I think the FDA might have just approved it, so it may become commercially available soon. But anyway, the anti-neuroblastoma antibodies given, 
and retinoic acid, a bit like um, what teenagers with acne pimples take, but we give that in high dose, and that stimulates the neuroblastoma to do that differentiation process, you know, where it uh, becomes more like a ganglioneuroma. So if there are residual tumour cells, we try to change them into something that isn't cancer anymore. So that treatment for stage 4 neuroblastoma is long and strong and intensive. It's multiple rounds of chemotherapy, big operations, big transplants, anti-neuroblastoma antibodies. We're talking over a year here, easily, and, and very strong treatment. Um, but it's, it's, it's what we have at the moment, and uh, uh, the neuroblastoma antibody's been the big breakthrough, and we can now realistically talk about curing this disease, and we now have patients that uh, are cured of stage four neuroblastoma, whereas back in the 80s, there weren't so many. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a bad disease, um, needs, uh, needs strong treatment, but uh, there is hope to cure this disease. And, uh, uh, you know, we've made some big breakthroughs recently. So look, I'll stop on neuroblastoma for now. I'll be doing multiple more podcasts on neuroblastoma. Uh, but just to reiterate, it's not a brain tumour, it's a tumour of the adrenal gland or the sympathetic ganglia. It unfortunately has a tendency to spread elsewhere in the body and become stage 4 disease. But there are forms of neuroblastoma that are quite favourable, that might, might just need surgery and a little bit of chemotherapy. And then there are ones that are unfavourable, that have high risk biology, and need strong treatment in order to control them. So we can't generalize about neuroblastoma and say, oh, that's a good one or that's a bad one. They are very variable and until all the data is put together, you can't quite say one way or another what they are. Anyway, thank you for listening in to my Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff podcast. I'll leave it at that and we'll talk about neuroblastoma a whole lot more in subsequent podcasts. Bye now.